वी नाउ मूव ऑन टू चैप्टर थर्टीन एंटाइटल्ड क्षेत्र क्षेत्रज्ञ विभाग योगा और द योगा ऑफ डिस्क्रिमिनेशन बिटवीन मैटर एंड स्पिरिट अर्जुना श्रेष्ठ कृष्णा पीपल डिस्क्राइब द यूनिवर्स यूजिंग पेयर्स ऑफ वर्ड्स लाइक स्पिरिट एंड मैटर गॉड एंड नेचर consciousness and energy and so on sorry if i appear dumb but frankly i just don't understand any of these words please can you enlighten me on these with a smile krishna says why not by the way don't be under the impression that you have asked a dumb question on the contrary even scholars are often not clear about such matters though they may make a lot of noise and pretend to deliver erudite lectures the first thing you must understand is that consciousness or rather absolute or universal consciousness as it is sometimes called is where it all starts from some people refer to this consciousness as god or brahman others prefer the term atma still others who are allergic to the word god would rather use the word spirit no matter which word you use it is all the same next as explained earlier god exists even when there is no creation all that is now appearing as the universe gets stuck into god as it were when creation has been dissolved when the universe is created god pervades it in two complementary aspects this helps to run the universe these two complementary aspects are consciousness and energy or spirit and matter if you prefer when you look at the sea you see just water dissolved in this water is salt yet when you look at the expanse of water you never talk about the salt but only refer to the sea you might have seen villages on the seashore many villagers there make salt do you know how they gather the seawater in shallow pans and allow the water to evaporate after a while both water and salt are visible it is the same in creation before creation one cannot really talk separately of consciousness and energy energy is subsumed in consciousness but after the universe comes into existence it is meaningful and also convenient to talk separately of consciousness and divine energy or spirit and matter at the working level these two entities can be separately experienced now there is an important point here that you must take note of we both are standing on the earth if you look up you see the sky the sky is supposed to be empty space but here and there there are celestial objects like the sun the moon the planets the stars and so on all of which represent matter 
The question now is the following. Space seems to be largely empty with a scattering of matter here and there. Where in this combination does one seek and find consciousness? The answer is that consciousness is present everywhere, including in regions that seem to be empty. There is no place where consciousness is absent. That is why the wise always say that God is omnipresent. This consciousness is no ordinary consciousness. It is universal consciousness. It is also the backdrop against which the whole of evolution takes place. The evolution of inanimate matter and also of living beings. Arjuna asks, Krishna, if consciousness is present everywhere, is it present also in matter? Krishna replies, Of course, I have already told you that there is no place where God or the Atma is not. And you are forgetting that so soon. Some people may doubt all this and ask, How can consciousness be present in inert matter? It may be present in living matter, but in inert matter like a piece of rock for example. The answer is quite clear. Since consciousness is primordial, it has got to be present everywhere, in vacuum, in inert matter and in living matter as well. As regards the issue of inert versus animate matter, one might say that in inert matter, consciousness is present in a passive form, whereas in living beings, it is present in an active form. Take your own self. I have already told you that the human body is a living factory. All the activities within the body and the actions performed by the body constitute proof of the life force that animates the body. You breathe, your stomach digests, your blood circulates. All these happen on account of prana or the life force within you. Where does this prana come from? From the Atma or consciousness. This prana, my dear Arjuna, is a manifestation of the active form of consciousness. Arjuna asks, Okay, I accept that. But tell me, we are told that when a person dies, the prana departs from the body. Since you say the prana comes from the atma, does that mean that when a person dies, the atma also quits and there is no atma in the corpse? Krishna sighs and says, Arjuna, you must think carefully and clearly. I have already told you that the Atma has got to be everywhere. Arjuna shakes his head and says, But Krishna, the prana has gone. What is left is just a corpse. How do you explain that Atma is present even in a corpse? With great patience, Krishna explains, 
Arjuna, did I not tell you that consciousness can be present in the active as well as the passive form? Well, when a person dies, all that happens is that consciousness associated with that mass of matter reverts from the active to the passive state. That is all. Death does not drain the Atma. You agree that the corpse too is made up of atoms. You agree that the Atma pervades the atoms even in inanimate matter. Then get this firmly into your head. Nobody can do anything to the Atma. I have already drawn your attention to this. The Atma is ever-existent. Sometimes it manifests in gross form. Sometimes it manifests only in a subtle form, like the mind for example. In addition, it is also all by itself, beyond both the gross and the subtle. The gross can be directly felt, touched, etc. The subtle cannot be touched or felt but can be inferred. The super-subtle is beyond intellectual inference. It can only be experienced, not by the senses or even the mind, but only by the heart. Arjuna now asks another question. He says, Krishna, you are in me, you are in Bhishma, you are in X, Y and Z. Have you divided yourself into many Krishnas, allocating one Krishna to each individual? Krishna laughs and says, Oh no, Arjuna, nothing like that. I am only one. Even an ignorant fool cannot parcel me like that. I am indivisible. Arjuna is not satisfied and continues. In that case, how come you are present in all? Krishna replies, That can be understood as follows. You will agree that there is air in your lungs, will you not? You will also agree that air is present similarly in the lungs of all the people here on this battlefield. Okay? Now, where did all this air come from? From the atmosphere, obviously. There is an inherent continuity of air, though some of it is free and some of it is in the lungs of various people. We do not pay much attention to this continuity, that is all. In the same way, the one omnipresent God is seated in the hearts of all. Got it? Arjuna now has a new doubt and asks, Okay, the same God is seated in all. The same God does the digesting in all people. The same God does the blood circulation in all people and so on. In that case... Why so much difference between people? Why are some people good and others bad? Pleased with the question asked, Krishna says, Arjuna, have you ever seen the bed of a Himalayan river? If you had observed, you would have noticed that on the riverbed, there is not only water, but also sand and nice smooth pebbles too. Slightly impatient, Arjuna interrupts. But what has all that got to do with good guys and bad guys? Unperturbed by the interruption, Krishna replies, 
Arjuna, you must learn to be patient. I am coming precisely to that point. Patience is one of the virtues I like. Remember the three P's. Patience, perseverance and purity. Patience is the first step in the long road to purity. Now, where was I? Oh yes, I was talking about the sand and pebbles. When the pebble is pulverized, it becomes sand. Now let us say you take two tumblers. You fill one with sand and the other with pebbles. Next, pour some water into both tumblers. In the tumbler containing sand, the water would get completely mixed up with sand, while in the other tumbler, the pebbles and the water would remain separate. No water would enter the pebble. Now this is the real point. The good guy is like the sand and the bad guy is like the pebble. The former, through his discipline and sadhana, has shattered his ego and body consciousness. Hence, consciousness seeps freely into him, raising his awareness of the divine to a high level. The opposite is true of the bad guy. His ego is intact. And so, he is like the pebble, no seepage. In other words, he has not evolved on the ladder of consciousness. God is present without fail in all. Some take advantage of the divine presence within, while others do not. Those who do are like the pebble pulverized into sand. Those who do not are like the pebble that is yet to be shattered. In the case of people who can be compared to sand, consciousness saturates every cell of their body and mind. Consequently, their feelings are full of love, their thoughts are full of love, their words convey nothing but love, and their actions radiate only love. Obviously, I do not have to describe the situation with respect to the person who has refused to allow God to permeate all over his senses, body and mind. After dealing with the subject of consciousness, Krishna continues and says, Arjuna, I now wish to introduce two important words, Kshetra and Kshetrajna. You know what Kshetra means, don't you? It means a sacred place. Here is some news for you. The body is a kshetra. Puzzled, Arjuna asks, The body is a kshetra? A sacred place like Badrinath or Banaras? Krishna replies, Yes, indeed. Arjuna is not able to understand and asks, How come? Krishna counters with a question of his own. He asks, Tell me, Arjuna, why do people call Badrinath and Banaras a sacred place? Why do they flock there? Arjuna replies, That is easy. Devotees throng to those places and go on pilgrimage because God resides there. That is all. With the love, Krishna says, Yes, of course. It is for the same reason that the body is also a kshetra. Arjuna, Imprint this firmly in your mind. 
the body is not an ordinary body. It is not just a hunk of meat or flesh and bones. It is the very temple of God. That is why the body too is a kshetra. Continuing, Krishna adds, This temple is no ordinary temple. It is a live temple. It is a moving temple and built personally by God himself for him to occupy. The wise refer to the resident of Kshetra as Kshetrajna. I find it very funny that when there are so many temples all over the place built by God, man insists on spending a lot of money, time and energy to build temples of his own. Having done so, he goes there, struggles against crowds, pushes and jostles to have my darshan. And what happens when he gets to the sanctum of the man-made temple? Does he seriously meditate on me? Hardly ever. What a tremendous waste when I am exclusively available and easily too to each and every person all the time. Arjuna is stunned by this revelation. Slowly he says, Krishna, I never knew all this. No one ever told me that the body is your temple, built entirely by you. What a fool have I been to ignore this temple and think of man-built temples far away. Lord, why are people misguided in this fashion? Krishna smiles and replies, very simple. People are all the time so immersed in worldly affairs that they have no time to either listen to or to follow simple truths. Instead, all their time is spent in promoting their ambitions, desires and what have you. They have hardly any time for me and even if they think of me, it is mostly in relation to their problems or their desires. Arjuna, today you can find many people who would parrot-like say, God is within you and all that. But can any one of them honestly declare that they have actually experienced God within? There is a notion of difference between bookish knowledge and practical knowledge. Since people do not hear and are not bothered about all this, I have to come down again and again to repeat the very same lesson, not just once, but so many times. Arjuna says, Krishna, please give me some time to digest all this. Meanwhile, please, may I ask you a few more questions? Why did you create the universe? In the first place, why did you create man? What is the purpose of human life? I hope you would be kind enough to explain. Krishna replies, Arjuna, at last you are beginning to think. Let me start with the question about why I created the universe. I have already told you that I exist even when the universe does not. I am then in a state of sheer oneness and absolute bliss.
It is not easy for ordinary mortals to understand that state. But elevated souls can, especially when they go into a trance. Arjuna, you may not believe this, but like humans, I also enjoy sport. Devotees refer to my sport as Leela. Creation is a Leela of God. I created diversity so that I could play with myself, appearing in numerous forms. You might have sometimes seen children play with dolls. They hold the doll and talk to it and they speak as if the doll is talking back to them. They try to feed and even spank the doll if they think it is misbehaving. My Leela is similar. In one line, I separated myself from myself so that I could love myself. A mother shows love to her child. That is what your eyes see. In reality, it is I, acting as the mother, who is showing love to myself, acting as the child. Feel dizzy? Don't worry. You will soon get used to this kind of stuff. Arjuna says, Krishna, I have a problem here. If you say that all the action one sees in the universe is just a manifestation of you loving yourself, then how come there is desire, attachment, etc., all of which you disapprove of? Krishna replies, Well, that is an interesting point you have brought up. You see, Arjuna, what you call attachment, desire, etc., are truly speaking merely distortions of love. I have left room for such distortions to add spice to my Leela. Let me now explain why I created man. Consider a tigress. You know how fiercely the tigress protects its cubs. That protective instinct is born of motherly love. But the tigress cannot know anything about the original source of this love. So, in my creation, I decided that there should be one species that is capable of higher consciousness. A monkey may love its kids, but it is not evolved enough to be aware of me and to love me as the Supreme Creator. That is why I created man. In fact, I created him in my own image, blessing him with innumerable treasures, making it easy for him to recognize me. Among the various species, the human form is not only the highest, but also the most sacred. Jantunam Narajanma Durlabham The human form is very precious because it is in this form alone that an entity in creation can truly cognize me and become one with me. This automatically brings me to the purpose of life. This purpose is very simple. From God you have come. 
and to God you must return. That is all. People may shake their heads and declare, This is impossible. How can one make God the only object of life? What about family and relatives? What about work and relaxation? Should life become one long, dull and monotonous pilgrimage to something we do not understand? Let me answer this doubt. Arjuna, you should remember that it is I who created society, building diversity into it. Therefore, I know very well that society needs all kinds of services for it to exist and carry on. But, and this is an important point, no matter who one is and to what strata one belongs, everyone can follow his or her vocation in life in such a manner that life's purpose is also duly fulfilled. How is that? Here is the answer. First, quietly chant my name while going about your work. Let us say you are sweeping the floor. It is quite easy to sweep the floor and also chant my name at the same time. By the way, there are no restrictions when it comes to name selection. I am known by many names and you can pick any one that pleases you. Just make sure that when you chant my name, you do so with feeling and with love in your heart. Sometimes, chanting may not be possible while you are working. For example, pretty soon you would be busy fighting. Obviously, you would have to concentrate on the battle and cannot be chanting my name continuously. But no problem. Just think of me for a moment before you start. Say a small prayer like, Lord, I am going to be busy for a while, but it is your work I shall be busy with. Please bless it and accept that as a humble offering from me to you. After that short prayer, you can go about your business. When the task is completed, you can once again say a small prayer, offering thanks and expressing gratitude. So, a little prayer before, work in between, and a short prayer on completion, a spiritual sandwich if you like, that will do the trick, converting work into worship. Arjuna, the essential point is this, I have given man a body and a mind to discover me and to come back to me. That is why I confer the human form on a select few. That opportunity ought to be properly used and not wasted. Arjuna asks, Lord, you say few, but there are so many people on this earth. There is something here that I am missing. Krishna replies, If you look at the human population alone, it might seem large. But compare it with the total population of all the other species put together, including the innumerable tiny insects. You will then realize that very few indeed are at the top of the evolution ladder, just one step away from God.
surely you would concede that is indeed a rare opportunity krishna continues so the big question before man is whether man should waste this wonderful opportunity living like an animal or a demon instead why not follow my simple three point formula which is one always think of me two always think you are doing my work whatever it be three and dedicate all your actions to me stick to this magic formula and you would be home in no time at all arjuna responds krishna i have a little problem with your observation that we should think we are working for you let us say there is a farmer who has employed a servant the farmer pays the wages and therefore the servant is working for the farmer and not you how can the servant think he is working for you this point is not clear to me krishna laughs and says arjuna if you understand what the cosmic drama is all about you would not be asking this question true the servant is working for the farmer but that is so only in the worldly sense in reality who is that farmer but me in disguise that is the feeling of oneness that you ought to have arjuna replies you are in effect saying that i must see god in all aren't you but i still have a problem let us say this farmer is stingy and cruel how can i think he is you you are purity compassion and love whereas that farmer is mean dishonest and wicked see my difficulty krishna replies arjuna if you look merely at the surface you would only see a mean and wicked person as you describe him but go a bit deeper and what do you find then you will discover that the so called wicked farmer is indeed god in disguise giving you a test test is taste for god you know arjuna is unconvinced he shrugs and says krishna this is too much you are supposed to be god you know everything then why must you test a person and make him suffer in the process just why do you have to do that krishna says in reply you have got it all wrong when did i tell you that i test a person in order to find out what exactly he is like i know for sure everything about every person of the past the present and also the future when i test you it is merely for helping you to know where exactly you are on the spiritual ladder a smart devotee would say this is a test that god has given me and have done just the opposite of what he expects from me which means i have flunked let this be a lesson next time let me get my act together properly and not fail like now if people introspect like this all the time there would be rapid progress and when there is progress tests would also become less frequent arjuna is not giving up 
and comes with a new question. He says, Something is still missing. I can think of many noble souls who in spite of being very pure face a lot of suffering. How do you explain that? Krishna replies, Oh, you have noticed that, have you? Well, the answer to that so-called paradox is the following. It is true that those noble people you are referring to do not require any quality check. Yet I put them through the grind as a part of my master plan. A shocked Arjuna asks, You give them suffering as a part of your master plan? What on earth for? Krishna replies, Arjuna, you must remember that everything that God does has a purpose. In this world, there are any number of bad guys who keep on setting the wrong example. Don't you think the world also needs at least a few good role models for kshama or forbearance? Once again, God does everything with a purpose. If a blade of grass moves, that too is a part of my master plan. You must have that deep faith. Arjuna now asks Krishna, Krishna, you are saying that everything is God and there is nothing other than you. Yet, a short while ago, you were talking of Shetra and Shetragya as if they were two distinct entities. Now, which of this is true? Krishna says, You have raised an important point and that gives me an opportunity to mention something that I have not till now. You see, Arjuna, there are two ways of looking at this world. One is through the looking glass of oneness and the other is through the looking glass of diversity. One who sees the former will see unity in diversity while the one who sees the latter will see diversity in unity. That is all. Of course, viewing through the looking glass of oneness is preferable. Let me illustrate with a small example. Say you have a narrow beam of white light. Allow this beam to strike a prism at a suitable angle. Passing through the prism, the beam gets split into the seven colors of the rainbow. A person who is seeing the beam before it has entered the prism would say it is white, while a person who sees the emergent beam would say it has the colors of the rainbow. Now what has all this to do with the Kshetra and Kshetragnya business? Simply this, an evolved being is like the person who does not see diverse colors of the rainbow, but just a white beam. For him, the Kshetra and the Kshetragna are one. Incidentally, such a person does not see the world merely with his physical eye. Rather, he uses inner vision. That is how he is able to see unity in diversity. In the example that I just gave, the prism is maya or delusion. If the prism is removed, there is no beam splitting and no rainbow colors. In the same way, if a person gets rid of Maya, he would see only unity and not diversity. 
let me now go a bit deeper into this business of diversity in unity and unity in diversity i am the sole creator and all in all but with respect to the universe i perform three distinct functions i first function as the creator bring the universe into existence i then wear a different hat and act as the sustainer and when the time comes i change my role once more this time to function as the dissolver of the universe people worship these three aspects of mine individually as brahma the creator vishnu the sustainer and protector and shiva the dissolver these three gods are referred to as the cosmic trinity in reality all this is just a convenient way of describing my three different functions and aspects let me now move on to the emergence of diversity from the primordial cosmic oneness basically this diversity comes about on account of the gunas for now that much is enough more about gunas later with respect to the diversity present in creation you can treat the gunas as playing a role similar to the prism one who is below the gunas would be bound by them and always experience diversity in particular he would see god as different from himself that is what philosophers refer to as duality by contrast one who is above the gunas or gunatita as he is called will perceive only unity though his eyes may show him diversity okay the big question now is how does a person immersed in this world of diversity rise above it this is a very practical question because 99.99% of the people are immersed in duality and swamped by diversity they insist on seeing god as quite different from themselves how to get out of this rut one starts with simple steps one first firmly resolves i shall never hurt any being whatsoever people hunt and kill animals for sheer pleasure this is very bad are there no better ways of enjoying oneself don't the animals experience pain while being killed must one kill another living being for entertainment arjuna asks okay but what about slaughtering animals for food man has to live must he not krishna replies yes man has to live and to eat but who said that you have to kill animals birds and fishes in order to eat why on earth do you think i created crops vegetables and fruits are there not people who are vegetarians are they not keeping themselves alive and healthy the food argument does not wash from the principle of hurting never you must move on to being kind to all beings Arjuna interrupts and asks Just a minute 
How do you expect me to be kind to a tiger? Krishna replies, I knew you would come up with something like that. Listen, when I say be kind, I don't expect you to go to the tiger, pat it on its back, scratch it, fondle it, and do things that you would do to a cat. All I am saying is that you must realize that God is present in the tiger also and at least prevent it from becoming extinct. You know, Arjuna, animals are not what you think them to be. They too respond to love and kindness. You must be aware that rishis live in forests full of wild animals, snakes and what not. But they never come to any harm. Why? Because they always radiate love. And when wild beasts pass that way, this love envelops them and they become peaceful. People have little idea of the power of pure love. If you are able to access this divine power, there is no limit to what you can do. So the drill is straightforward. You start by not hurting anyone. Next, you start to love. In due course, you will move away from diversity and begin to experience a cosmic oneness. The scriptures say that God has a thousand eyes, thousands of feet and so on. People do not pause to think what precisely this means. Instead, they immediately start imagining a form with a thousand eyes, a thousand feet and so on. If anybody had such physiological features, that person would look like a monster. God is not a monster. No, God does not sport a monster-like appearance. What the scriptures mean is that the totality of humanity is God. Society is God. Incidentally, this implies that if you serve society, you are in fact serving God. The question arises, if society is God, then how is man related to God? Simple. Man is just a limb of God. That is all. The day man feels that way, his ego would disappear. To wrap it all up, the body and the mind are very sacred and together ought to be regarded as constituting the temple of God. Nothing must be thought, said or done as to pollute this temple built by God Himself. Those who understand clearly that the body and mind are vehicles for journeying towards me are very dear to me. And as they come towards me, I shall be waiting for them with open arms. What more can one ask for?